You are listening to A Bigger Life, a podcast by The Crossing on how to live into God's bigger story. Well, welcome to another episode of A Bigger Life. It's a podcast here at The Crossing, and my name's Dave Cover. I'm one of the pastors, and what I want to do usually with this podcast is interview people that I think are interesting, that are part of The Crossing, have interesting stories, do interesting things vocationally, or do interesting things at home. And today I'm talking to Matt Gordon. He is the, lack of a better term, cultural coordinator, or what do you call yourself over there at VU? Um, title is Director of Faith and Community. So oh, I work... Where did I come up with cultural coordinator? Was well, that... I work on the culture team. We have a team okay. different people do different pockets of culture um they hired me originally to be a chaplain yeah and then i, I was te- gonna say chaplain but yeah. then that's not cool anymore so I exactly don't say so i tested yeah. that on a friend who's not a believer and said what if i got hired at your place of work um and i was just floating around talking to people about life um would you talk to me? He's like, sure. And I said, what if they hired a chaplain? He said, I'd stay the heck away from that guy, and I'm yeah. editing that. And so that's when we're like, okay, we got to come up with a better So better you're at title. Veterans United. You're the, not cultural coordinator, but what was your term? Director of Faith and Community. Director of, yeah. faith, director of faith and Community. Yep. So just right out there straight with it, faith yep. and community at a business that is primarily headquartered here in Columbia with about 2,100 People that work here mm-hmm. in the Columbia office, and then they have an office in what Dallas, Kansas City. Yep, offices in Dallas, Kansas City, and then uh, remote offices kind of all over the country, uh, near usually military bases, Virginia Beach, Scott Air Force Base, San Diego, places like that. But you might you you live here in Columbia. You yep. work primarily with the the people here in Columbia, mm-hmm. and and so how would you, if you were talking to a friend, describe your job? What's your job at Veterans United? Well. I guess if I'm talking to a friend, it's different than my wife. When I got this job early on, she would tell people, well, what, what is Matt doing? And she'd say, oh, he gets paid to be everyone's Christian best friend. And so I thought if too many people knew that, I might get fired because I should be doing more. But uh, Sounds like a, kind of a loser job. Anyway, yeah, you know, yeah, kind of a weird role. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, my role, I guess, it's not really heavily defined, but it's basically to care about the flourishing of my coworkers. Um, and one of the ways to care about that flourishing is their spirituality, namely the gospel. Uh, and so it doesn't mean I go around and hand out tracts or preach at people, but it does mean that I'm there to listen to people, uh, to grow with them, learn with them, laugh with them, cry with them at work. Um, and when the timing's right, uh, and they kind of set that timing, uh, we can explore elements of the gospel and how that might bring something to their life. And so how I do that uh, vocationally is one, be present. I'm there 40, 50 hours a week hanging out with people. Uh, we but, come up, but, 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 so, so, but there is not really a there in Columbia. There's like all these offices spread yeah. throughout the community. Yeah, we have offices all over the place. So the goal is, uh, it used to be every week to get to every building. Okay, um, a day a week kind of thing. Uh, something like that, maybe yeah. an hour a week in yeah. some cases. Now it's more monthly. It's also um, having an attractional model. So the Crossing actually has partnered with us in this. They let us use their gym. Um, and my team kind of helps run a, a dodgeball tournament. And so we get 300 employees at this where I get FaceTime with them. So I don't have to go to all their different buildings. They kind of come to me because we have something they want to be at. And then I get to throw dodgeballs at them and get to know them and hang out with them. And we see where that goes. And so then, you know, when you've hit someone in the face or been hit in the face by a dodgeball with them, it's a lot easier for them to say yes or no to your lunch invite later that week. And so kind of doing it that way. Let me ask you this. I mean, what, what's your own faith journey? How did you grow up? How did you become a Christian? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I still haven't figured it out, um, not just like the faith journey, but even how God intersected my life. Um, there are stages to it. The first stage, I guess, is when I was five, six. Uh, I heard the gospel presented pretty clear at a VBS. My mom read the story. VBS, Vacation Bible Vacation School. Bible School. Um, my mom reads the story to me about a dog who gets lost. The kid goes to great lengths to find his dog. I connect the dots that it's supposed to be Jesus and, and all that. Um, I'm the dog. Uh, and so I asked Jesus to my, my heart. Uh, we were at a church where uh, they did believers baptism. So then when I was 10, I get baptized. Uh, around that time, my parents started having some marital difficulties. Um, where is this? What? This is in Cape Girardeau. Okay. Yep, uh, Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Part of the marital difficulties is my dad was in the church. He was a leader in the church. He was a deacon. They were grooming him to do more and more. And through some of that process, he kind of decided he didn't believe in God. Hmm. That led to maybe not fully believing in the marriage. That led to a lot of probably sin on both their parts. Great parents, great childhood. I don't want to dishonor them in any way, but they were very divided, especially in terms of faith. And then that the foundations came crumbling down. Yeah, and for so them for them and for you. Yeah, for me, I'm you know by the time this all ended, I'm 12. I'm entering kind of formative type of years, and I'm trying to decide: Do I want to chase worldly success, a good job, popularity, world travels, like my father, or do I want to like chase what my mom's got, which is kind of sort of lonely and like a church where some of the people are sort of weird? Like I'm not too sure, and I didn't really Nothing choose. Nothing looked attractive. Yeah, I mean, I didn't volitionally choose, but I chose through my lifestyle, my habits. So sports and relationships became the thing for me, uh, kind of the idols. I didn't walk with the Lord for quite a while, um, or really at all. And then in college, I was 22. Uh, I was getting ready to finish my last semester stateside before going abroad to do my final semester of college in England. And I was reading East of Eden by John Steinbeck, um, and it just all, like, it just hit all at once. One of the things what is, hit? well, I, w- I wanted to be, uh, I was an English major. I wanted to be a writer. Yeah. And so here I'm reading something that is better than anything I could ever write. Mm. So then I think about it. And when I think about being a writer, what I always pictured myself doing, and this is silly to admit, but I pictured myself on David Letterman's couch, not at home, but in yeah. a studio being interviewed about my great American novel and yeah. telling him about my next one. And what I realized in that moment is that I never even really wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be famous. Or I wanted to have prestige. You wanted to be on David Levin's couch talking about your books. Yes, yeah. I wanted to be somebody. Yeah. And so then I realized that what I was chasing wasn't even real. And even if it were real, I couldn't do it like Steinbeck had just done it. So I'm reading this atheist's book that is a great book, and it just hit me. And one of the lines in there that he's talking about is the Cain and Abel story. He's talking about how God looks at, at Cain and says, uh, thou mayest, in terms of Cain overcoming sin. And I'd never pictured God as a thou mayest God. I'd always pictured him of, you will follow me or else, kind of my church upbringing. You go to lock-in, they tell you you're going to go to hell, they turn up the heat, all that. I'd always pictured him as that kind of God, very legalistic, um, or an impossible God to follow. There's no way you can do this. And so when I read that like kind of thou mayest sentiment, and realize, what do you mean by thou man? Is that King James of that verse? Yeah, it's the okay. King James. Um, just And again, Steinbeck was not a theologian by any means, but there was something to that saying that the God of the universe, and it, it was nighttime, I was sitting in a lawn chair, it had gotten dark because I was thinking all these things. I look up and I see these stars. The maker of those stars was like wooing me. Hmm. Uh, Steinbeck had told me that the the, the world path that I was choosing... I couldn't do, or even if I could do, it wouldn't fulfill me because it's not actually what I wanted. Hmm. 
And here's the God of the stars saying, hey, thou mayest, you can come to my side. You can be. Mm. And in that moment, it just hit me that I don't know how to do it. I don't know why I would do it, but I know if he made those stars, I want to be on his team. Mm. Uh, and then I just kind of started walking it from there. Now, kind of like the crossing always says, it was uh, a couple steps forward, a step back. But I ended some relationships like the next day. I changed some habits that I had never been able to get a grasp on. Like everything toppled in some ways where I was like, this was real. So I, I always think of that like at five or six, I think that I saw Jesus as a savior and I really got that. I got the gospel. I understood kind of him taking my place, him coming and chasing me in some ways. But in that moment of launcher, I understood. The gospel him. being the main message of Christianity. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That God created us. We've sinned and rebelled. Yeah, we needed. He uh, became a person and yep. died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead to yep. give us new life, offers us that that life if we have faith in Him, follow Him. Yeah, so yeah. I, I think I got that part, but I didn't understand the Lord part, and it's because I didn't want the Lord. And in some ways, in that moment, I realized, man, it's great to be on the winning team. And he's a good Lord, and he's a good God who wants good things, and he wants to direct my past to where even if I write a bestseller or don't, I'm accepted, valued, loved, and my existence isn't dependent upon that anymore. And so it was just so liberating. Like It's the freest I ever felt, confined by a God who has some rules for me, is where I found freedom. Hmm. And you became a Christian through John Steinbeck. Through John Steinbeck, yeah. yeah that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So then what happened in your life after that moment, that John Steinbeck moment? Yeah, so I went home for the summer, did things that kids do at college during the summer, a part-time job, goofed off. Uh, and then I went to a college in England. So for the first time in my life, kind of, I was totally alone. I didn't have sports as kind of like a structure to kind of... What sports did you play, just real quick? Uh, I played soccer and baseball in college, and then... Yeah. Tried to play basketball in high school. You played uh, baseball for the college team uh -huh, and yep. the soccer, soccer yep. for the soccer team. Yeah, yep. yep. and so that was always kind of my identity in some ways. What so, college? Uh, Hannibal Lagrange. Okay. Um, and so then in England, I didn't have that. I didn't have friendships. I didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't have all those things that I'd had. And so I'm kind of trying to find myself, find my faith, totally sort of absent of community, which isn't what I uh, would normally recommend. But in that, it allowed me kind of just to get to know Jesus in a way that I wouldn't have with these distractions. Like, everything was removed. Like How'd you do that? I mean, how did you get to know Jesus without uh, without Christians around? Quiet yeah. was one way. Um, reading. I actually had reading time. Uh, Steinbeck, the Bible, anything. It's just that when I was reading before, I was always reading with a lens of how does this propel myself? And now I'm reading things in a lens of, like, how does this philosophically make sense in the world? Like, how does, how is the world, how do I see this intertwined into the fabric of all the people around me? So you're riding on a train, going to London for a weekend, and you're just looking at people and seeing emptiness, and mm. you're seeing lostness, and you're seeing um, peace in other corners. Like, you can just almost see it on the people, and I, and I could see it in myself, and all of a sudden it's like God was doing something in me and moving me. And it was funny because in that... Um, I had been in a church my whole life, and then I went to a Christian college, and I had never done anything with faith, but at that, we lived in a castle in the study abroad program. Someone said, hey, um, you're an English major, you're good at reading things, we're going to try and do a Bible study, can you lead it? And so there's like four people in a basement of this thing once a week, trying to fumble our way through scripture, none of us knew a thing about most of it, uh, and it was just so great for me, because I got to 
without any kind of identity structures, choose this hmm. in a way and dive into it. Where there wasn't applause, like my friends were like, oh, this change in you. There wasn't a spotlight. There wasn't a give your testimony in front of 100 people. Like it was just totally quiet and totally small. And I think that really helped me make it totally real. So later you went to seminary or what did you do? Uh, no, uh, I actually, when I came home from England, I was a manager in training at Dairy Queen. I was supposed to be a manager in training for like two weeks and I was a manager in training for like three months. They never uh -huh. took the in training off because I was so bad. Uh, and then that college I went to called me. They had an opening as a women's soccer coach. I became the women's soccer coach, the sports information director. And then the day classes started, someone got in a car accident. I ended up teaching a, a, a bunch of English classes as well. Um, so I did that for a while, and then after two or three years of doing that, I got asked to speak at a camp randomly uh, for a church. It was actually the church I grew up in. So I went. Had People are noticing by this point you're a pretty decent speaker. I don't think so. Uh, you're I, getting asked to speak at places. I think this was one of those where it was like this they didn't a have anyone else. Yeah. It would be free. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I was I home during it. the summer, and so they just randomly yeah. gave me a call. They're like, hey, do yeah. you want to speak at this thing? I was like, sure. I figured it'd be a one Well, I've heard you speak, and you're actually a really, really good speaker. So my guess is well, those gifts were there at a young age. People I did not it. know them yet, yeah. and I had an experience. I'd never really spoken about my faith in public. They drive me up into Michigan. There's 100 kids there, and then they, they had me speak five times, which uh, I, yeah, yeah. It, it was taxing. And so I spoke five times, and then it went pretty well. So I said, why don't you speak at our weekend services at this church, maybe about a thousand-person church, and I'm sweating all over myself. I, I, I'd speak there, and then afterwards they said, hey, if you are interested, we'll make room for you. We'll figure something out. You'll have to volunteer at first, but we'll probably carve out a job if you want. To do what? If you want to, if to speak? Don't know. Yeah. They didn't know. I didn't They know. wanted you on their bus. And so I went back to my job in Hannibal, uh, told them this. They supported me. I finished out the semester, and then I moved home to that church, uh, worked for... And where is this church again? Uh, Cape Girardeau. Cape Girardeau. Yeah. Worked for four or five months just helping out, uh, kind of leading the college ministry, um, volunteering, and then they made me the creative coordinator and the church manager and the college person or just whatever the single guy on staff at a, a church like that could do. And um, How'd you end up here? How did you get on... The radar of VU. Um, again, it's one of those God working in the story things. Um, my oldest sister's first job ever was at Captain D's in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Uh, she worked with another 16-year-old at that Captain D's, and one day that 16-year-old pulled at that church where I was attending youth group and said, hey, your sister can't make it. Get in the car. There's a little Volkswagen Beetle. I got in his car. His stereo was playing. His hair was long. He was this crazy guy. Um, Ten years or so later, uh, I get a call of the blue. I'm in, at that church as an employee now, and the same guy from that Captain D's is calling me. His name's Eric. He ended up becoming friends with my sister, hanging out with our friends, hanging out with us all the time. Well, he became BU, one of their lead recruiters. Hmm. And so they're looking for this chaplain job, and he had seen on my sister's Facebook that I had uh, been involved in some things and then found out that I had worked at a church. And I didn't seem like the churchy type, so he got my number and just called me out of the blue. Um, and they were trying to find a chaplain or something. So, yep, a chaplain or something. So he told me about it at a mortgage company. Things were going really well at the church. There were some good opportunities. I said no uh, to the VU thing several times because like, it's a mortgage company, and I didn't even know how to spell or what a mortgage was. Um, and then he called back like three months later, and he said, hey, I don't want to bother you again. 
I know you said no, but they're getting ready probably to hire someone else, and I'd love for them to meet you. And I said, I'm 98% sure I wouldn't take a job if you offered it to me. And he said, well, there's still 2%. And I said, yeah. So you're I, saying there's a chance. I said, I, I, I follow God. Uh, there's 2%. I could move to Africa tomorrow. I, I always leave 2%. He's like, well, I'll rent you a car. And so in some ways, it's like he picked me up again. Yeah. And so uh, I, I got in the car. I came up to VU, and it was just um, it's kind of just kind of overwhelming day. Where, Met with Brock. Yeah, the, the leaders there are just so genuine. And what they wanted this to be didn't align with my perception of what I thought they would want it to be. I thought it'd be pretty watered down and kind of safe and not very creative. And then what they were telling me was like totally opposite of that. So I just saw a lot of potential there. So you took the job and you have to define it. They tell you, we want you to what? Yeah. From Brock's perspective, um, he wants to enhance the lives of his employees but one of the things he started to realize, because his journey was someone at work invited him to come to Church at the Crossing. That visit to Church at the Crossing just changed his paradigm on everything. And so he thought, man, the workplace could be a place that could get someone closer to, to Christ in some way. Uh, and so he wants to enhance lives. And he, I mean, he's even written this before, that if he can enhance an employee's life for 10 years or 20 years or, or 50 years here on this earth, that's great. But if he can enhance their life in some way, take part in enhancing their life for eternity, like that's where the real win is. So that was his thing is he said, build a platform for Christ here at the workplace in a way that's non-coercive, in a way that is winsome, in a way that's loving, in a way that can benefit people maybe who even don't come along, um, and then just go and do. And then he kind of, he's really plugged into what we do, uh, but he kind of just said, figure it out. Let's see yeah. where this lands. And so we yeah. didn't, I don't think we knew what it would be. Uh, I still am not always sure what it'll be year to year, what we'll take on, what yeah. we want to do. So you move here and sort of just define the job. You had to kind of get your, figure it out. You know, you're meeting people. You're kind of, so, so what's your job now? What would you say is your job at, at VU? Uh, I think uh, probably my job is to be a friend to employees and just an ambassador for Christ in the workplace and trying to make those things mold really well together. Um, I think it's also to, to learn to be a friend, um, an advocate, and a person for a large variety of people. So I don't want to just be someone who's building the Christian wing. Yep. Uh, I mean, I, d I don't want to do that. I want them to grow and I want them to develop, but I also want to be over here hanging out with, with these people who aren't in that camp yep. and learning how they camp, learning what they have in their tents and learning how you know their life is going and having that be genuine. Yeah, so you, you're, you're obviously well-known. I know you're well-liked. Uh, at, at, at VU and, and if I'm a non-Christian at VU what do I think about you? Do, do, are you of any help to me? Um, I'm, I don't want to become a Christian but I'm having marriage troubles. I don't want to become a Christian but you know I've got this situation at work that's bringing me down. Do I come talk to you or is that somebody else I should look for? I hope you come talk to me. I mean we're failing if you don't um, and when you come talk to me it's not going to be on certain terms. Like, okay, you can talk to me. We can only meet three times if you don't come to Christ. By the fourth time, we're done. Yeah, you're done. Um, it's not that, because again, I, I think that idea, and, and the crossing does such a good job of talking about this, but the idea of flourishing, um, whether you're near God or far from God, 
I want to help you use your money better. Uh, whether you're near God or far from God, I want your marriage to succeed. And so I have, uh, I've done some marriage counseling, uh, premarital counseling with... And they don't have to be a Christian people to who are atheists. From your yeah, so they sit You've there... you got principles that work. Yep, they say, hey, we're atheists, but we've heard, you know, you have some wisdom or you're available to us or you're free. I mean, there's all kinds of motives. And then we'll just talk about, hey, here's what's helped my marriage flourish. And hey, I want to look at this scene out of Genesis. This is the Bible. I know that's going to weird you out. But it's an ancient wisdom. Yep. Yeah. You don't have to take it as truth. I happen to. You don't have to. But listen to this. Does that sound like your relationship at all? They're like, yeah, we blame each other all the time. But so did Adam and Eve. And this is sin. Now you might call something else, but when we... And so hopefully that happens. You You work in Christian principles that have worked for your marriage, worked for other marriages, but they don't have to be Christians to apply them to their lives. But it does at least maybe get them to think about things on a, on a level they don't normally think about when it comes to Christianity, spiritual things, God, maybe maybe an absent area of their lives. Yeah, I mean, the compartmentalism of, like, Christianity. Um, a lot of people think, well, I don't want to add that thing into my life, but really all of life centers around whatever your worldview is. And so helping them see that and navigate that, that you have fears, hopes, dreams, um, goals, all of these things. So do I. We both do. And we both want peace. And we both want um, probably to have more money. We both want to have more influence. We want to have significance. We both want to have transcendence. Here's how I go about doing that. Uh, you might go about it a totally different way, and that's fine. But what commonalities do we have? What differences? Um, and so it's great when that happens. We both want to have transcendence. Tell me about that. I mean, how would you have that conversation with an atheist? Well, um, I'll say this to protect anyone I've talked to. Uh, I had this conversation with someone four years ago. Well, let's make four years ago the standard. Um, uh, someone, I have this conversation, they come in. It was in, Bob and it was yesterday. Bob, well, yeah, close on a couple points there. Uh, but a guy comes in my office, uh, a great guy. We hang out. We kind of known each other. Um, we engage in a hobby together, and so that's how we kind of built our relationship. But he comes to me, and it's January, and he just feels lonely and empty and like life has no meaning. Yeah. And so I say, Common hey, human condition. I feel that way too. Every time the calendar year turns, sometimes it's hard for me to think about, man, how am I going to do this again? Or did I really put my gifts and talents to the test? Like, is this even worth it? I think all those things as well. And so then he gets to, to go on and tell me uh, one of the ways he's appeasing that feeling is he's going to the gym more. And so I get to applaud that. Yes, we're going to the gym. Going to the gym is great. And I'm like, what happens when that gets old? And so we get to start talking about what he really wants is something that is bigger than going to the gym. But he's putting all of his hope in going to the gym and his next girlfriend. I mean, that he said it. That's what I'm putting my hope in. And be like, well, how's that worked in the past? And we talk about that. And what we realize is there is a much deeper thing. And so then I get to tell him, hey, here's how that deeper thing was solved for me. I tried those things too. And obviously I don't go to the gym anymore. Um, it's radio. You can't see that. But um, I tried those things, and every time you do that thing long enough, it leaves you empty. You need something that's a bigger. I mean, it's Ecclesiastes, the eternity set in the heart of man. So we get to have that conversation in a very real, kind of organic way. He didn't leave my office crying or believing in Jesus, but he did leave, hey, I want to talk about that more. Or There's I'm some stuff to think about. I'll read about something it. with you. Sure. Um, yeah. And so that's kind of how we navigate that, that so many of our desires, whether we're believers or unbelievers, are the exact same thing. We're just finding different means to appease them, and some things don't work. And one of the things I've heard people say is everybody likes Matt, whether you're a Christian, non-Christian, whatever, everybody likes Matt. Any principles you have that work for you? I mean, you're a, you're an, a vocally 
um, open Christian in a workplace. Your job is to be the Christian who helps people, and yet the non-Christians like you. Are there any principles that you apply to to build common ground with non-Christians, um, be likable without having to be religious? What Anything come to your mind? Yeah, um, I think, one, letting God do the timeline is huge. Um, so not pressuring things yeah, to happen. Like, just... he's he's going to win the day when he's ready to win the day in hearts. And even in my story, just seeing how there were so many progressives and it, it, it could have been anything I read. Like Steinbeck wrote a book that touched me in, in a deep way, but it's because of the timing of when I was reading the Steinbeck book. Mm-hmm. It could have been Harry Potter. I had opened yep. and I'm crying and I'm trying to explain it's because Ron and Hermione or something. Like it wouldn't even made sense, but it's because of the timing of it. And God had done all that in my life through a myriad of ways that I couldn't control. So to realize he's doing that in other people's life allows you to back up. Also, I do believe uh, that... Back up and just be there relationally so that yeah. when the timing happens, you're yep. there. They okay. trust you. And you're th- a guy they want to talk to. That's something else that maybe came from my story in doing that semester abroad when I was sort of finding my faith is that the relationships, when you know you're only going to be living abroad with people for four months, because all the people were from the United States. We were all there together in this castle living together. Um there's no real transaction there. These aren't going to be long-term networks for me to get a job. These aren't going to be people I'm going to date or people who are going to be like, eh, they'll be long-term friends maybe through social media or whatever, but they couldn't give me anything. So I could either isolate because they weren't transactional or I could learn to in the moment love the person, to get to know the person, to care about the person not based on what they could give me or not based on how they could feed my identity. And so in the day-to-day at the workplace, it's the same way in that, yeah, I want to have deep, long-term relationships with these people, but also I know my life is short. It could end at any point. So I also am not looking at, like, in 30 years, I'll be ready to talk. So it's kind of having both of those things um, that are a paradox going on at the same time. I want to love this person well in the moment, but I also don't need to, like, throw a Hail Mary right now. It's first down. Um, So kind of having both of those things. Um, I think... Relationally, too, growing up in a household where uh, I had a mother with strong faith and a father who didn't put his faith in in the gospel is helpful because I love them both. Um, And so just learning to love people even when they don't agree with you. You can understand where they're coming from, love them. And understanding story, too, that like my dad might end up there. And there's going to take all these influences to get him there. And also there are some influences that pushed him away from it. Um, and so just always realizing that I'm an influence in someone else's story, what kind of influence I'm going to be. And so I want to be a great listener and I want to be kind hearted and I want to try and understand where someone's coming from. I also think that truth, I I believe in truth with a capital T. I also believe that God doesn't need me to like be his bulldog, like to fight all his battles. I need to give a reason for the hope I have, but his truth can stand up for itself. It's durable. And so I don't need to be the one who's picketing, who's, you know, digging my feet into the sand, who's yelling, who's any of that. I can just be and let his truth be. And so those are principles I think I try and do. Correct me if I'm wrong, but most of the people that work at VU are what we would call millennials. They're somewhere between early 20s to mid-30s. What are some of the typical things do they deal with that you talk about? What are typical issues, problems? Yeah, um, I think the biggest thing, and I I don't think it's a millennial thing. It's just a human thing. You want to be part of something bigger. Um, 
the whole transcendence thing. Yeah, and with millennials, they've been giving, given the tools to be part of something bigger. Like generations in the past, you want to be part of something bigger, you join the army or you have kids. I mean, that was it. You had your own little family you built or you got into the military. I mean, there wasn't all these struggles, but now we have all these social media. You have Twitter. You have So even in day-to-day moments, the temptation to be part of something bigger, you can access it so easily. And so you don't actually ever pause and think and intellectualize and philosophize like what is the something bigger I want to be part of. You're just flowing with this big giant river and you're not, you're not even cognizant anymore that you're flowing with this big giant river. And it's not the quality of the bigger. It's just that it's bigger than me. So I can get on Instagram. It's omnipresent. Yeah. I can get on Instagram and look at the, the pictures and all the stories and it'll like submerge that feeling of loneliness I have for Mm. 17 seconds and that'll get me to the next time I need to look at it and I'll do that on repeat for the rest of my life Hmm. and that's just like existing that is really a good thought I hadn't even thought of that but I mean I mean obviously everybody thinks about the dangers of social media but this whole idea of this transcendent river that's omnipresent that just sucks everybody in and they almost can't get out we're almost going down the river drowning in this cultural, social media, constant electronic attention. And it's, it's you know, we're, in a sense, we're drowning. Yeah. And I think the, the thought sometimes is that, well, it's better than nothing. And I think at first it is. Better than loneliness. But then pretty soon it becomes, it's not better. It and now I can't loneliness. get out of it. It creates more loneliness. I think it's the Netflix guy said that his goal is to end boredom and loneliness. But when you're binge watching Netflix, there comes a certain point where you're in a deeper loneliness than you ever were because stranger things doesn't appease that eternal longing that you have. And so you just see that in the millennial. Yeah, it is a great show. But you see that in the millennial culture so much, not that these tools and these things they've been given are bad at all, but they are the all in all. And that's that's, really interesting. That I think is really hard because they in your soul you feel it. Yep. And so you can fake it for a while, but pretty soon it runs off the rails. And then you have all the gadgets, you have all the help, you have all the self-help, but you still, why do I still feel this way? Is there anything else you've thought about that are typical issues that the people you work with deal with, struggle with, face? I think another one, and I think the crossings even referenced this. Um, he does a good job in it in the road to character, David Brooks's book, um, this idea that we've grown up and I'm right on the cusp of that, that you can be anything you want to be. And, you know, you're the star of your own show. There's a survey somewhat recently somewhere that said something like two out of three millennials think a movie could be made about their life. And so I think there is this thing that we're kind of feeding on. We see ourselves as a character in our own story. Yeah. And it's sort of a sham. And at some point we become truly just a character and it's not real, it's not authentic, it's not deep. And like the loneliness that we appease, we need to deal with, not appease. Hmm. And so for them to like, being lonely can be a good thing because it can drive you into depth. It can drive you into relationships that matter. It can drive you into eternal musings that lead somewhere. Uh, but there's no time, there's no space, everything's so hectic. And your phone, like my phone right now is buzzing as I'm saying this. And so it's just constantly tugging us into this narrative that doesn't fulfill. And so you just sense that every time you meet with someone who's like got a whole list of New Year's resolutions. It's like, what are we trying to resolve? We don't actually know what we're trying to resolve. Like, 
we, we know the reasons we're doing all these activities because we're supposed to do these activities and I timeline said I should, but we don't ever get to the reason why we feel the emptiness. We've found ways through technology um, and just through culture to be lonely in a group. Hmm. And I, I think that, especially at a place like VU, because we do have an amazing culture, we mm -hmm. have an embracing culture, we have a connected culture, and yet there are people in our walls who are just so, so lonely. They're surrounded by perks. They're surrounded by all these things, but what they need is purpose. Hmm. Um, and so you see that too where um, there's counterfeits, um, where we confuse purpose with getting the job I want or making the money I want. Or, so there's these counterfeit virtues that have kind of slipped in, I think. And so you see that. And that's what I mean by like lonely in a group. Like you have everything it looks like you would need to have this great life and it's hollow yeah i mean it's the whole premise of the american dream where we yeah. created it people achieved it and they were like now what whoops and didn't so, do it so what do you do i mean so your 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 job is to find a way to in a sense pull people out of the river i don't know well how do you what are your programs here what do you do at vu to help people give people a chance to find something to bring them out of their loneliness, find purpose, find transcendence that's real and not fake. Yeah. Well, I think one of the methods uh, or the ways that we look at it is we want to have a presence, one to large, um, one to small, and then one to one. And what so do you mean by that? Our one to large would be attractional type of settings, teaching type of settings, sort of like a church would do. That It's the Sunday service. Um, and so that's when we bring in a great guest speaker, um, that's when like we, Matt Holiday, Matt Holiday, Benjamin Watson came. He was phenomenal. They were both great. Um, Barry Odom came recently where we'll bring people in a room and just get them together and like kind of hit on some of those issues to kind of stir up, um, the zeitgeist, kind of stir that up so that people can recognize it. And then maybe even hold a mirror up and say, Hey, maybe you're feeling some of this. Here's what we can do. And, and these we, are voluntary They're Yeah. 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 Um, we just, but how many people come? It depends on the event. Um, uh, right now, a lot of our kind of faith forums is what we call them. We we call them that because we want people to know there yeah, could be a faith element so they don't feel bait Honest up front, sure. We definitely don't want to do that to create a barrier. We just we, we want that more to be a volitional barrier if you don't want to come. Um, when I first started, we were, we were hitting usually around 80, which we felt really good about. Now, usually those are three to 500. Wow. Is so what they we built a good with. reputation, apparently. And we bring in great speakers. That yeah. helps. Um, yeah. But yeah, so we'll do the one to large, and then what we'll try and do is from the one to large, push people into the one to small. And so these are our small groups. And so we have at work small groups uh, that roll out pretty much every semester. We'll roll out about 65 of them. All of them are, I would call, redemptive. 65 uh, small groups at VU. Yeah, yeah. Um, and those are what, there's some organic groups that just keep going, and, and there's departmental groups. But these are like kind How of many in a group? new ones every time. Uh, eight to 20. Wow, that's a lot of group. people. Yeah, we've, we've grown them a lot. And not all of those are faith-based, probably about half are. Um, well, if they're not faith-based, what, 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 what other stuff do small groups talk about? Uh, we try and kind of have everything. So we'll have... Um, groups on finance, we'll have groups on how, how to handle your money, we'll have groups on how to be a better leader, we'll have groups on world religions. From the small groups even, uh, you'll just look for opportunities to take people to lunch or to get involved with people. And then as that's grown, managers will refer people to come talk to, to me or someone from my team. And so that gives us a chance to really get to know someone at a, a vulnerable level that just feels super safe for both of us. Um, 
And then we started last year uh, a program that's one-on-one reading through the Bible, uh, the book of Mark. Um, and so we have the relationships going really well at BU where people are connected. They talk at the water cooler. They hang out on the weekends. Like They, they like each, each other. other. Yeah. And so there's not this thing where I have to meet a stranger and get to know him for four years before I open up my Bible. Mm-hmm. Like the groundwork's there mm-hmm. for so many people. You've got a good reputation, I know. So we've taken, we've taken 35 people and we kind of empowered them to go out and pick one person to read through the book of Mark with them. And then the second year we did, we had 35 and the original 35 come back. And so now we have like 70 people going out and they're going to read the book of Mark this year. And then next year we're going to have about 150. And so, so they find somebody at work to read through the gospel of Mark, mm-hmm. get together on our, some quasi-regular basis and yep. talk about it. Yep. And we wrote them a guide that makes it pretty easy to, each one's a standalone lesson. And then the goal would be within five to seven years that we've had a thousand people not see the cultural Jesus or the hippie Jesus or the Republican Jesus or whatever, but mm-hmm. just see Jesus and Mark and be able to respond in turn with a trusted friend who, who walks beside him. I imagine there are a lot of people listening to this podcast who don't work at BU and are thinking, gosh, I feel like I'm stuck in that river floating down. I'm I'm lonely in a group, I'm constantly, desperately staying connected, but feeling more and more lonely in the process. Is there anything, any advice, uh, obviously they can't come to one of your groups, one of your meetings, one of your one-on-ones, is there any advice that you have for them? How do they, how do they get help? I think one way is to seek it, but don't seek it in, in kind of the world's way. Um, I remember fourth grade, I broke my wrist. My mom was out of town. My dad said, oh, it's not broken. Um, <laughs> and we went all weekend. I had a broken wrist, just hanging out at home with a broken wrist. And we put ice on it, put some wraps on it. And, you know, it just kind of took care of it. my mom got home and said, he needs to go to the ER. Like he's got a broken wrist. I did in three places. So, uh, dad wasn't a doctor, <laughs> but for a broken wrist, you don't just do the quick fix. Uh, and so I think that's the thing is that the quick fix is next time you're lonely to fill your schedule to the brim so you won't be lonely until the next time. Mm. Sit through that loneliness and mm. sit through that loneliness with someone you love and trust who you can say, I'm lonely mm. and who won't just try and do the quick fix to you. Because mm-hmm. that's the other thing is most people hear a problem and it's instantly how do we solve the problem where when it's a deep problem, it takes a longer term fix. Mm-hmm. And it's not even about fixing it. It's about sitting through it and learning. Um, it's I not about, I just want to concentrate on it. It's not about fixing it. It's about experiencing it. Yeah. And, and, and in that process, in that loneliness and that emptiness, learning, mm-hmm. learning what? Well, I think learning that peace is kind of a state of being, being at peace, feeling peace. And that's not a circumstantial state of experience. So I can be at peace tonight if I go and exercise and eat a good meal and my wife doesn't have a huge to-do list for me and I'll call that peace. No, that's just like what I'm experiencing. I had a good meal. Tomorrow, if we find out someone in our family passed away and we have to drop everything, go to a funeral and load up our newborn and do all these hard things, well, that shouldn't dictate whether or not I'm at peace. Hmm. And if it does, there might be a problem. Hmm. Uh, that that needs to be unearthed and needs to be looked at. And so I think that that's the thing is that we just chase and grope and yearn for this kind of 
cultural happiness. And that says, if something's wrong, fix it or hide it. Where what we need to do is just say, hey, something's wrong. I need to be okay with that with someone else who can help me move towards better. And not better as I'm a better person or the best version of me. That'll come, I think. But more so the better in that I'm valued and I'm accepted and I don't have to strive and I don't have to yearn and I don't have to... I actually have a hope that's realized that's stable. It's not always up and down and willy-nilly. It's just stable because I have stability in God. And so I think that would be the thing if you're out there and you don't have uh, that community. You, you just need a person. Uh, and, and a church is a great place to find a person. And in the same way, you, you go one to large and you hear a sermon and then you get into one to small and you get in that small group. And then the person you trust in that small group, talk to them you're vulnerable with them, and then if they're the type of person who's the right fit, they're not a person who's trying to fix you instantly. Like, hey, let's go to the gym. That'll solve everything. We can go to the gym, and that's great, but not as a solve. Let's walk through this. Let's sit in it. I always think of uh, someone who, like Joni er Erickson Tata, or someone who is, is paralyzed. Like, they're not fixing that. So how do they learn peace through that? And some of us, we are always going to be paralyzed in some way, but we can still have peace and hope in the gospel. If I'm working somewhere and I want to maybe figure out a way that I can develop relationships with people, uh, you know, obviously I don't want to violate work policies and 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 boundaries, but is there is there something I can do if there's a bunch of people at my work that might be interested in going through something? How would I start? What's a, is there a starter kit? Is there a, a recommendation advice from you of how to do that? I think the biggest recommendation is that I've never seen a company with an HR policy against kindness. Um, and so being kind to the people around you and being kind doesn't mean that you put weird things on their desk for them to discover. Like that's not a kind thing. That's like a selfish thing where you're trying to build your empire, get a platform, get attention. Yeah. Force them into something. Being kind is your friends moving. You show up to help them move. Like you think about what good friends have done in your life, and then you do those things to other people. From that, anything is possible. So you become close friends, or they become trusted, and then you say, hey, I'm doing, uh, I'm going to read Mere Christianity before work. I'm going to get to work 45 minutes early. I'm going to go to a coffee shop across the street. If anyone wants to join me, I'll be there reading this book. You don't have to. You know, it's not on company property. Like, there are so many ways to... Be, again, our mantra we use at, at our job is be smart but not scared. Um, you just don't you don't want to be dumb about it because then you ruin your opportunity. There's a guy I worked with. He was so great. He would go into the same gas station every day to buy a huge Diet Coke. And I told him once, like, you could get that so much cheaper if you just went to Walmart and bought, like, a 12-pack. What are you doing? And he said, well, then I don't get to go into the gas station. And he did it for a year, and then he got to know the staff so much. They all knew his name. They'd call his name when he came in. Um, he asked if he could hang something on their staff bulletin board, and they said, sure. And he hung uh, a piece of paper that said his address and said, reading through the book of James, 6.45 a.m. or 7 p.m. He had two options for him. And both sessions, people from that gas station who worked there showed up. Hmm. And so it's like his kindness and his perseverance and his presence allowed him entry into people's lives. And it's no different regardless of where you work. It can be the most oppressive work environment, but kindness will break through that. Um, and again, you want to protect yourself and your job and your company and do those things. But if you're kind, if you're loving, if you're looking out for someone else, that's attractional to people and they'll be drawn to you. And then who knows what you can do with it. I think realizing, too, um, maybe it's this idea of common grace. 
that everyone has something to offer and not that you're trying tra transactionally to get that from them, but you can learn from people who are different. So you have a lot of people who, man, I want to be a light in my workplace, but they never ask any questions of anyone else. Hmm. And they never want to learn in, from someone else's worldview or ideas on, on anything that's different than theirs. Um, hmm. We had a, a, a person at work who invited someone to read uh, the book of Mark with him, and the person said, no, that's not really for me, but would you read a book with me, and then I'll read a book with you. And the guy's like, sure. And he goes, well, I'll pick my book. Uh, what's your book going to be? He goes, oh, the book of Mark. But that's what the, the entry point to that was, I want to learn from you too. You have something to offer me. I think as believers, we have this great hope um, in cracked vessels that we get to shine light. And it's the most important light ever. But through common grace, other people have great ideas. And other and people know more than us, and we have a lot to learn from them. Tons yeah. to learn. And so when I want to be the Christian at work with all the answers, my audience is going to get really small really fast. Mm -hmm. But if I want to be a person who is navigating life, and by the grace of God, I have this one area that gives me just tons of security, um, tons of peace. It allows my marriage to be sustained. That's an awesome thing that people around me want to learn from. And so I'll give that to you as much as you want it. And I want to learn how you do that with your money. Like, I, again, I said earlier, I don't know how to spell mortgage. And I work with all these people who have all these great investment ideas and are starting businesses. And it's like, hey, okay, we can go meet on this thing that I'm really passionate about. But tell me about your passions. And a lot of times our passions overlap. It's mm -hmm. just I've found this outlet because God's been good to me um, and has looked favorably on me. And I think he's looking favorably on you too. You just haven't realized it yet. So I just want to help you realize it. Be smart. Don't be scared. What do you mean by that? Don't be scared. Well, Brock, who is, uh, one of the owners, Brock Bukowski, Brock Bukowski he attends the cross and he's one of the owners. Um, he said to me early in my employment, I fully expect that you'll get me sued. Hmm. Let me know if you're going to bring down the whole company. And I just thought, Warn me first. it was tongue-in-cheek, but it was just a great line in that you have to take risks. There's going to be risk. And that doesn't matter who you are, where you work. It doesn't matter if you're a stay-at-home dad or stay-at-home mom. It's risky when we bring the gospel into a conversation. It's risking our popularity, our prestige. Um, we see risk happen when the apostles get beaten for their beliefs. We see risk happen when Jesus gets put on the cross. Like, there's risk to all, any move you're going to make. It's risky to be kind. It's risky to be kind. It's risky to be vulnerable, like anything you're going to do, but be willing to take the risk and take the smart risk. Like for me, I could go take the risk when I get back to my office to stand and proclaim the day of the Lord is coming. I could stand on the table. I could throw judgment on those who have not repented, and it would be my last day at work, and I would lose relationships with hundreds of people that I could be building something with. So I want to be smart with how I'm taking things on, smart with how I'm stewarding the platform God has given me. And then we don't want to do anything, whoever you are, you're, you're kind of building a platform, uh, kind of almost building respectability. You don't want to do things that damage that respectability, hmm. whatever that would be. Um, it can be small things, like if I'm in the store and I'm just terrible to the checkout girl who's, who's doing my groceries and someone behind me hears me and then I'm doing a faith forum on patience or something. It, it doesn't land. And so in some ways you don't have to be perfect. You should have vulnerability. Like I, I deal with anger and I should lead with that. Uh, 
but we do in some ways have to walk our talk and, and all of that. And so I think that's key as well, being genuine, authentic. One thing that was really helpful to me when I started is I was a chaplain at a mortgage company. There wasn't a long list of people waiting to be the chaplain of that company. And there wasn't like, I wasn't trying to be the head chaplain. I was just the chaplain. No one wanted what I had. Loan officers would look at my job and be like, I'm glad that's not my job. I'd look at their job the same way. I don't know what they're doing. Um, So it made me totally non-threatening. I wasn't trying to climb some ladder. And so I was really safe for people. And what I realized is that should be how Christians are anyway. Like we're not in the same arena of competition as everyone. And that doesn't mean at our work we're not trying to thrive and do well uh, and steward our gifts well. What I mean by that is our existence doesn't ride on our next promotion, nor should it as a Christian. It shouldn't mean that we're all about get, 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 more money, more prestige, more fame, more promotions. We should be about giving, giving, giving. And when we take ourselves out of the rat race of competition that is cultural America in our workplaces and our home places on mom blogs, it doesn't matter what you're looking at, it kind of makes us just safe to be around because we're not trying to get what the other person wants. We're not going to take advantage of their vulnerabilities or yeah, take advantage and, of them in some way. And then eventually what happens is they realize that peace that we have and then that's when they start to want it because mm. they're tired of competing. Mm. A race that doesn't end, that doesn't sound fun for anyone. And so when they say, hey, how did your race end? Like, how are you just okay with, if I'm a chaplain at Veterans United for the next 40 years, I'll thank God for it. If tomorrow I get called to go to Africa, I'll thank God for it. And that doesn't mean there won't be difficulties in transitions or changes or whatever. But what that means is just I should have a different paradigm for my life and what I'm after and what fills me and uh, how the fruit of the Spirit works in my life and be less about all these cultural milestones that are put out in front of me. So if you want to be a person who advocates and an ambassador in your workplace, regardless of what that workplace is, become safe to people by not competing for what they want. Thanks for listening to another episode of A Bigger Life. Thanks, Matt, for being here. I know this is a you know fun to have a conversation, but it's always taking time out of your busy schedule, and it's been fun to have you have you talk with us. This podcast was produced and edited by Gimel Sabingo. I'm your host, Dave Cover. We'll see you next time.